we seem to have some sort of problem in this passage. I'm not sure if when you were reading it along with Heidi there, uh, whether you found that you did have a problem. If you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful today if you can open it up. Uh, there'll be one on the seat nearby, and uh, if you don't have one handy, uh, raise your hand and we'll get you one, because being able to follow through what's happening on the page here will be really helpful today. Uh, yeah, if anyone needs, a, needs one, please put your hand up and we'll, we'll grab one for you. Okay, well, I'm going to start with we seem to have a problem. Uh, What's the problem? Well, well, let me spell it out for you. There seem to be two big things happening in this passage. Uh, Number one, uh, Jesus is saying pretty strikingly, uh, this is a picture of the temple up here, and uh, he's saying, danger, demolition imminent. Okay, Uh, he really is. He's he's saying there is a, a big issue here. On top of that, he's also saying, wow, something amazing is going to happen. Sometime soon, you will see Jesus returning on clouds with great glory. Uh, The problem is, uh, it appears, so if you have a look, at, you'll see it in 13.2, the destruction of the temple. Uh, The disciples are talking to Jesus. They say, "Uh, do you see all these great buildings? Uh, Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on the other. Everyone will be thrown down. You're looking at a pretty magnificent piece of architecture. It's all going to come crumbling down. The the second passage, the one I was talking about, have a look at uh, 1326, you hear this. At that time, some people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There's something extraordinary happening. Jesus is returning in power and glory. And there's another thing happening, which is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the reason they become a problem is here in verse 30. In verse 30 it says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Okay, we're comfortable with the problem at least. You see the problem. So the first part is, Jesus says the temple will be destroyed in the lifetime of this generation. Did you know that that happened? That actually happened. So the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and is still destroyed to this day. Not one stone of it is left on top of another. But uh, last time I checked, Jesus hasn't returned with clouds and glory yet, has he? Unless I missed it. No? In which case, probably we all missed it, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. So here's the problem. The problem is, he says, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So I think the question we need to ask is, is Jesus wrong? Was Jesus wrong when he said this? And uh, of course, a whole bunch of people have felt maybe that he was and have wanted to point it out in books. Uh, A whole lot of different other people have said he can't be wrong, so let's make a whole lot of tricky things to explain why he wasn't. I want, to, I want to wrestle with you today. This is one of the hardest passages in the New Testament, I think. I want to wrestle a little with you today. And so if you'll come with me, see if we can fire up our brains on Sunday morning. If you'll come with me, I think I can show you how we don't have to end up with a problem with Jesus and how he can actually be true. So let's, uh, let's have a look. Uh, this is the view uh, that Jesus and his disciples had. Well, actually, it's a modern view of the spot where they were. Can you see there all the boxes in front of you? Uh, they're tombs. 
looking across to uh, the Temple Mountain. Uh, the, the temple uh, is across there where you can see the wall there. Uh, does anyone know what the gold dome is there? Dome of the Rock, which is a... It's, it's a Muslim mosque on the site where the temple stood in the middle of Jerusalem. How about that? All right, here's where they were. This is roughly the view that they had, obviously, before there was a mosque there, when there was a temple there. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 4. As Jesus was leaving the temple, he's been hanging out in the temple, teaching in the temple. He's just finished watching the widow put her small coin into the temple, uh, the temple coffers and commended her. So they're walking out. As the disciples uh, and Jesus were leaving uh, the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then later in verse 3, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's our view there, opposite the temple, Peter, James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, When will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Look, if someone told you that the centrepiece of the Jewish religion is going to be destroyed, you'd probably want to know when it was going to be, wouldn't you? I think it's immediately intriguing that the disciples don't say to Jesus, hey, that's never going to happen. They know now enough, they've come to know him enough to actually trust him. So when he says the temple will be destroyed, instead of being uh, wanting to debate with him whether it will or it won't, they're now just simply asking the logical question, all right, if it is going to happen, when? When will this take place? Jesus sets uh, a little bit of context for when it will take place. In fact, the next couple of verses, uh, verses uh, 9 to 13, actually don't tell us when it will happen, they tell us the sort of environment that it's going to be when uh, such things might take place. Uh, if you have a look, actually, we're going to read verses uh, 5, to, uh, 5 to 11. Uh, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed, for such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are, he says, the beginnings of birth pains. Jesus is here saying there's going to be distress in the world. It's going to be ongoing. Ongoing distress is going to be in the world. Do you think there's been any time since Jesus spoke that where there weren't wars and rumours of wars? I can help you out. The answer is no. Where there aren't earthquakes happening, where there isn't famine somewhere. Well, that's our world perpetually, isn't it? And so Jesus here is saying, well, they say, when is it going to happen? Jesus says, well, let me set the scene for a world that is broken. You're going to be in a world where there will be wars and rumours of wars, where nations will rise, where there'll be earthquakes and where there'll be famines. Uh, these, he says, are just the beginning of birth pains. So they won't be the sign that this is about to happen. They will be the general mix of life. So if you hear these things, don't go, oh my goodness, the destruction of the temple is about to happen. He says, that's just part of what it is to breathe the air of a fallen world. If we go on a little bit, he gets more specific. And this is uh, the verses that follow. Uh, Verse 9, you must be on your guard. 
You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, don't worry about beforehand what you will say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Then he says in verse 14, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Ah, we get to something specific. It's really interesting. Jesus is about to say, this is the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. I note with interest uh, that the book of Acts tells us a number of the things he's just said happen. So, in the book of Acts, before the temple is destroyed, we're told that Christians will be flogged. And they are. In the book of Acts, Christians are brought before governors and speak about Jesus. And they are. In the book of Acts, we see them when they're before governors, they get given words by the Holy Spirit to speak. We actually see in the book of Acts, this is probably going to surprise you a little bit, we actually see at some level the gospel being preached to all nations in the book of Acts before the destruction of the temple. How? On the day of Pentecost, it actually says that they're standing up and they were speaking in tongues, other languages, and it says there were people standing there from every nation in the world. People from every nation in the world hear the glory of the Lord being proclaimed. Really interesting. So I'm going to argue that actually the signs here are fulfilled prior to this sign, which is in verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. I love this. It's beautifully ironic for us today, isn't it? Let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here's where Jesus is saying, it seems like this is a clear sign. The abomination that causes desolation, standing where it shouldn't. When that happens, flee to the mountains. I think it is a clear sign in Jesus' mind, even if it's not clear to us what on earth he means. So Jesus is saying, see that? That's the trigger. Run. Now, of course, because you and I are sitting here, we have no idea, do we? Largely. What on earth he means. Uh, There's been a good deal of speculation about what it could have lined up with. The idea of the abomination that causes desolation is from a prophecy. And uh, it had actually happened when uh, a foreign king had actually set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. Uh, And so that had happened. Uh, And Jesus is saying another thing like that is going to happen. Uh, Some people have argued that maybe it was when the Romans, when they trashed Jerusalem, came in and set up the the standards of the Roman uh, legions inside the temple. Do do you know what a standard is for the the fighters? Basically, a big stick with a gold eagle on top and kind of a flag banner hanging off it. And the the Roman armies worshipped them, quite literally offered sacrifices to their standards. So they were idolatrous. They brought them into the temple and plonked them down. But at that point, if that was the sign, you're a little bit late because the whole of Jerusalem was burning. You with me? By the time they get into the temple, uh, there's no time left to run. There is another option, which is a very odd one. I did some reading this week. Uh, Do you remember one of the disciples is called a zealot? Simon the zealot? Do you remember this? 
Some of you might have heard this. The Zealots were a radical group. And at one stage, apparently, in about AD 66, they took over the temple. They threw the regular priests out and they started offering sacrifices themselves in the temple. There was then a group of people who decided that was a very unholy thing and they went in and had a fight with them and their blood was spilt inside the temple. A bunch of people believe that in 66 AD, with the zealots taking over the temple and then having this little civil war happen, that that was the sign, when you see that abomination happening in the temple, you need to start fleeing. And in fact, it was the very next year that the Romans started to crush all the rebellion in Jerusalem. And then in AD 70, they got into the city and totally destroyed it. So there's some speculation, although we don't know for sure, that the abomination that causes desolation was an unholy treatment of the temple by Jewish rebels. And if that was the case, it actually was a good sign. You could have seen it and you could have fled before the Romans came and put the city to the sword. Okay. Here's some really interesting things. Because I said at the start that there's a problem, we think, does Jesus say that the destruction of the temple and his arrival, his return in glory, will happen at the same time, this generation won't pass away. I'm going to argue to you this morning that they're two separate things and we don't have to believe that Jesus got it wrong. I'm going to work it through with you. I'm going to show you how the predictions about the demolition of the temple are quite different to the predictions about Jesus' return. So if you bear with me, let's have a go. I know I'm working you hard this morning, okay? Bear with me. I think there'll be a payoff. So, first question. Will there be a clear sign that the destruction of the temple is happening and that Jesus' return is imminent? Well, the first thing is, yes, there'll be a clear sign. We just read it uh, for the destruction of the temple. Uh, Verse 14 says, when you see the abomination. So, yes, there's a clear sign there. Will there be a clear sign of Jesus' return? Have a look at verse 35. Uh, It says in verse 35, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. Jesus is actually saying, you won't know when I return. There actually isn't going to be a clear sign of when I'll return. Point number one, what can you find out about the return? Have a look at verses 28 to 29 and we'll see what we can know about the destruction of the temple. Verses 28 to 29. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Jesus is saying, yes, the destruction of the temple is going to come. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be just like the leaves coming out telling you that summer is on its way. It's knowable. How about the time of his return? Let's contrast it. I'm going to say it's unknowable. You won't be able to find it out. Have a look with me. We'll we'll, we'll kind of dive in here. Verse 32 says, But about that day or hour, no one knows. Notice how much no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
33. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. Verse 35. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Can you see the contrast here? One is a really obvious one. The tree is going into summer. You see the leaves and you know that it's about to happen. And then three times we're told Jesus' return, that is unknowable. Next, where do we see the signs happen? Where's the impact of these things happening? So uh, there's a warning about the destruction of Jerusalem. Have a look at verses 14 to 19. Uh, it says this, When you see the abomination, uh, verse 15, Let no one in the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it won't take place in winter. Because those days will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, never to be equaled again. You see, the people are to flee to the mountains. So the effects are going to be on earth, they're going to happen to the temple where the temple's destroyed, and people in Judea are to run away. That's where it's going to happen. How about Jesus' return? Well, have a look at verses 24 and 25. But in, the, in the, but in those days, notice this, in those days, look very closely, following that distress. Let the reader understand. Following that distress, following the distress of the destruction of the temple. So later than that, in the days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Will you miss that? This is your chance to be interactive with an answer that you can know for sure. The answer is correct. Okay, great. So you won't miss that. Contrastingly, when you see the abomination, etc., what are you to do? Well, something earthy, you're supposed to run away. And that's our next point. What should the elect do? Well, we just saw there the elect, the chosen ones of God, the, the friends of Jesus, what should they do? They should flee. At uh, the end of verse 14, uh, tells them, uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the elect should run away. In contrast, what should the elect hanging out for Jesus' return do? Have a look at verses 33 to 34. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going, uh, go, going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Now, that's a house that is either empty or full. What is it? It's full, isn't it? A full of servants. What are they doing? They're waiting for their master to return. That's a contrast, isn't it? In the first one, when the temple's to be destroyed, when you see that sign, what do you need to do? Run away. When Jesus is coming back, the image is you should Stay put and watch. You should be watching. You should wait for Jesus' return. I think that's a huge contrast, isn't it? Okay. How will God help the elect? Well, have a look at what he helps them to do. In verse 20, it says this. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Okay, so what's God doing? Well, he's going to help them to stay alive. He's going to help them to stay alive. In verse 27, we see what happens to those 
what God's assistance will be for those on his return. Have a look at verse 27. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. What's he going to do? Pick them up and help them to come with him. So there's a huge contrast here, isn't it? Incidentally, I think it's greatly encouraging. How far does the good news get when Jesus returns? Well, it's to the four winds, isn't it? To the ends of the earth, even to Australia, perhaps. Certainly from Jerusalem, that would have been the ends of the earth. So when Jesus returns, he's going to gather his elect back. He's going to pull them back from all the places that they have been scattered and draw his people together. That's actually deeply encouraging about the spread of the gospel. It's also encouraging that God is talking about something different here, his return, than the destruction of the temple. When will it be? Well, I'm going to argue that uh, verse 13 says, uh, verse, sorry, verse 30 and, uh, 29 and 30 says this, Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Now, we've been, I've been trying to argue for you that it's not clear when Jesus' re- return is, but it will be clear when the destruction of Jerusalem is. Have you followed me that far? Okay, so then he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. He's saying the things that I've talked to you about, they will happen, and this generation will see them. But the things that I'm talking about that you can know, that you can see like a fig tree being prepared, are actually stuff that's going to happen in Jerusalem. So when is it going to be? Well, the destruction of the temple will happen inside this generation. When will the return of Jesus be? Well, then it's far further away. Verse 36 says, If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. For what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Not not just you'll know what the sign is, it's be perpetually watching. Be a people who only know what it is to watch, to wait. When will it be? No one knows that day or hour. When will the other one be? When you see the sign in Jerusalem. There's a contrast here. All right, so how does this all work? I suspect this next slide won't be very helpful, but I I like putting it together, so there we go. Uh, I think that there are a number of sections here that move from one bit to the next in this chapter. So he starts off talking about the the temple being destroyed, and then he moves on to to talking about his return. He says, but in the days following that distress... Okay, temple destroyed, and then he says, I'm going to talk about the next thing. In the days following that distress, I'm now going to talk to you about Jesus' return. It then says, he then turns the attention from talking about his return to, now, I want you to learn a lesson about the fig tree. Fig trees give a sign. Fig trees give a sign. They start changing colour when the season comes. So, let me talk to you again about the destruction of the temple. And then he says, it's it's actually quite amazing. Have a look with me. Uh, You'll see it here. Verse 30 and 31. He says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I think when he says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, he's talking about the heavens and the earth passing away. About that day and hour, nobody knows. Can you see the difference? 
You can know about the destruction of Jerusalem, but about the day when the heavens and earth pass away, about that day or hour, no one knows. All right. Incidentally, both people are exhorted to watch. Have a look at this. Uh, For the people who are worried about the destruction of Jerusalem, verse 23 says, Be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. For those who are looking forward to his return, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It couldn't be a bigger contrast, could it? But the answer of how they're to live is the same. Be on guard. All right, so how should we watch? How should we be on guard then? The first way we could be on guard is like your loving pooch. Does anyone have a dog at home? Some of you do. Andy, your dog, yep. Does it guard anything? does. Okay, is that right tomorrow? Yep. About this big. How does a dog watch for its owner to return? Lovingly with unending expectation. It's just one of the most beautiful things in the world, isn't it, if you've, if you've got a dog? Actually, one of the saddest things if the owner isn't home. But it's that, it's a passive thing. It's just sitting there waiting, and its whole attention, though, is on the loving expectation of the return of its master. Totally passive, but very loving and devoted. How about a century uh, outside uh, an important installation? How do, they, how do they guard? How do they watch? Well, it's pretty passive. They're not really doing anything. They're just standing there. But they are ready to be really aggressive if they need to, right? So the other one was passive and loving. This one's passive, standing still, but ready to shoot you, cut you in half or something like that, uh, if the wrong thing happens. Totally different kind of watching. So one's passive and loving. This one's passive and aggressive. Sounds like we're diagnosing someone's personality here or something, doesn't it? Um, The third option, a third option, is to think about the people at the beach, your your, um, lifeguards. Anyone got sucked into Bondi lifeguards? Anyway, it's it's an amazing thing. Uh, They are active in the sense of they're constantly engaged in seeking out where the trouble might be. So they might be on the little bikes going up and down, Um, they're seeking actively and their heart, their desire as they're watching is to protect everyone there. Now I've talked about a dog, I've talked about a soldier and I've talked about a lifeguard. I I actually don't think that there's a perfect analogy from one of the three of them. Maybe it's a combination. Do you remember the, the reading that we had about the virgins who were waiting? What were they waiting for? Does anyone remember? The bridegroom. It's a loving expectation, isn't it? That's, that's the picture Jesus uses. It's a loving expectation. But he also sets up a picture of a world which is going astray, isn't it? And so there's a sense possibly where we need to bring some of the resilience of the soldier to what we're doing. Yeah? And while we're waiting, we're waiting actually to make sure that others are ready too, aren't we? To save those who might be drowning. So there's a sense in which we should wait like the lifeguard as well, shouldn't we? How should we wait? Well, we should wait well. We should wait expectively. Uh, we should wait lovingly. I'm not sure I want to say aggressively, but with intent, resisting the devil, standing firm, and with a protective intent for the people around us. There's a beautiful passage in 2 Peter 3 which says this, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Good question. 
You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. How ought we to live? Holy, godly, expectant lives. Jesus said, don't let the owner come home and find you asleep. It was nice of Annette to wake us up for the uh, confession at that point. Don't be asleep. Don't be asleep. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus, uh, I'll say one more thing. How should we wait? We should, we should wait with holy hearts. We should wait expecting Jesus' return. I think the other bit about Jesus' prophecy here is we should wait expecting that everything won't always get better. Are you with me? Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumours of wars. He said you'll be pulled into synagogues and flogged. He said, actually, all people will hate you because of me. Now, when we're surprised by this, it's not that we've dropped off God's care. It's that we've forgotten Jesus' preparation for what the last days would look like. Now, I don't want life to be hard. Does anyone here want life to be hard? I, I, I would love it to get better. I would love my life to get easier. I would love it to be better and better to proclaim Jesus. The expectation is the opposite because of what Jesus said. Here's three things that turned up in my news feed this week that might suggest everything isn't getting better and better. Here's the first one. Uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers costed the uh, plebiscite on same-sex marriage as being half a billion dollars and said, therefore, we shouldn't do it. Apparently, our consultants have decided that democracy costs too much. Should we, should we be surprised? Well, interestingly enough, the footer on the bottom of the PricewaterhouseCoopers report said, we are the largest gay employer in Australia. Did anyone know that piece of information? Interesting that it turned up in our news this week. How about this one? Safe schools. Have you heard of this this week? Last week, the week before? Safe schools, Victoria to defy federal government on anti-bullying program. I don't think there's anyone in Australia who wants kids to be bullied in school. I think it's appalling, and I think we should do everything that we can to make sure that children aren't bullied in school. I think it's absolutely right and appropriate. Having an anti-bullying program that smuggles in an alternate view of sexuality is deceptive in the extreme. This program just reminds us we are living in a world that is heading in an opposite direction to us, a federally, gov a federally funded government project which is designed to teach kids to explore alternative sexuality and alternative views on their own gender. Should we be surprised? We probably shouldn't be surprised. This is the one that took the cake for me. Did anyone catch this story? Annette, you can probably tell me much more about it, I assume. But uh, in this week just past, Sydney University said to the Evangelical Christian Union, which has been on site there for, I think they said, 1930. So how many years is that, Luke? 80-something. Been a part of the university for more than 80 years. In fact, there'll be people here who've been part of EU. Is that right? Show of hands. Some of you have yet. They said to them, actually, do you know what? You can't be a club on our university campus anymore unless you change the membership rules for the leadership team of your club. 
Apparently, the rules of the uh, Evangelical Christian Union said that you have to be an Evangelical Christian to be one of the leaders. Sydney University decided in its uh, wisdom that that was a restrictive and uh, discriminatory requirement and that if the EU wanted to continue to be a member of the registered unions at the school, they would have to allow anyone of any persuasion to be able to be on their board of direction. Does anyone else think that's mildly nuts? I think the real challenge with the logic of this is, do you think they would have said this to the Muslim club? I don't even think we need to ask that question. It is absolutely, I think, hands down lock-in that they wouldn't do that. But it's free reign on the Christians, isn't it? Guys, all I want to do with pointing this out is to say to wait, to watch well in an environment that is increasingly heading in the opposite direction will get hard. You will have to decide, will you stand with Jesus? Will you expectantly await the return of your Messiah? Will you live a holy and godly life? Will you seek to make the good news known so that we save some on the day that the bridegroom returns? We have to be all in because being passive and sitting still, you will be eaten for breakfast by this world. We need to get on with the hard work of working out whether we love Jesus seriously. It can't be a Sunday hobby or an idle distraction that brings you here. You have to work out in an increasingly corrosive environment whether you love Jesus yourself personally. Secondly, I think we need to do the hard work, the heaven work, which is the expectation that we long for the day when Jesus will return on clouds of glory. I actually think this gets easier as the world gets harder. Why would we long for the return of Jesus, for his justice, for his righteousness, for his holiness, for the new creation? Why would we long for it when this looks like a piece of heaven? The harder it gets, I think, the more we will long for his return. So today, I don't think we can finish this section here without Jesus' words. Verse 35. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or whether the, when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. In high school, a mate of mine and I decided that we, we should be ready for Jesus' return at any time. And we decided that what we'd do is that we just randomly, every now and again, grab the other guy by the shoulder and say, now! And so we, sit, we used to sit there in mass, and I'd be sitting there doodling away doing mass, and my mate would turn to me and go, now! And it was, it was amazing. We did it for about a year until we got tired of it and forgot and whatever. But we just randomly surprise each other and say, now! And the awesome bit about it was, it actually just started to heighten me up. Do you believe that Jesus could return at any time? Well, there are wars, there are rumours of wars, it's hard to be a Christian, etc., etc. Yeah, is Jesus able to be... Of course he could come back now. So the question is, are you ready now to meet your Lord? What I say to everyone, Jesus said, I say to you, watch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that your son Jesus spoke truly about the temple. It did fall. It was destroyed. Father, we thank you that he spoke truthfully about his return, a day or hour that is unknown to us but imminent. Father, may you help everyone here. Help me to be like the faithful servants in the master's house, to not be found sleeping, but to be actively, energetically engaged in making your son's name known. Father, would you help us to give and live the message of new life so that we might be found ready. We ask it in Jesus' sake. Amen.